Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to actually, I think, maybe finish verse 2 tonight. We'll see. Yeah, I know. I don't want to, you know, only be like Bill, get too hard and end up, try to go too fast, end up injured. Well, let's let's read verse 1 because I, I when I went back to study this out in the last few days, I ran across a couple of um, references and, and one in particular from um, William Barclay. I always have to hesitate because when I think of Barclay, I want to say Charles, but Charles, is he may be a nice guy, but he's no biblical scholar. But I ran across this this reference and it just, wow, it hit me and... and um, so I wanted to, to bring it out. But let's read these first. Um, New King James says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 reads, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the new thought that I, I saw from Barclays, and, and I sort of knew this, but I, you know, you read an author and he puts something in a certain way and it's like, wow, he just, he words that so well that I just, it makes you stand up and pay attention to it. He was talking about um, where Paul said, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He said the the word apostolos in the Jewish culture of that day, because remember the the um, in world history, especially if you go back in Daniel and you see the statue of the man, he had um, feet of clay and then brass um, legs and and all the rest of him. Part of that described um, the ancient world's historical sequence. Um, the and, and when the the Jews were in captivity, Babylon took them into captivity, and then um, wasn't Darius Cyrus conquered Babylon, and they became the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Cyrus turned out to be, even though he was a heathen, he um, blessed the people of Israel and and gave them the commission on his dime, which, you know, it's one thing for a king to say, yeah, you have my permission to do this. It's another thing for a king to say, you have my permission to go back to your homeland and rebuild your temple and I'm going to pay for it. That's just, that's a whole different, that's a whole new degree of blessing. But he, he sent them back. And then the Medo-Persians were eventually conquered by the Greeks, by Alexander the Great. And he conquered pretty much the entire Mediterranean basin, all the way from Spain through parts of France, Greece, um, what is modern day Iran, Iraq, all of the Middle East through Egypt and North Africa, back around to Spain what eventually would become the Roman Empire. But one of the things that Alexander, and this is where we owe him a great service, one of the things that Alexander did was when he took over for his father, um, he had all of these Greek armies from city-states. None of them could communicate with each other. And he was kind of like, if you've ever read the history of Alexander, um, or not Alexander, but Alfred the Great, the first 
true king of England that unified and, and created what we now call England, one of his orders was if you were going to be a, a nobleman, yes, if you were going to be a nobleman, you had to learn to read and write. Noblemen up to that time said, no, we don't, we don't need to read and write. We hire people to read and write for us. And he said, no, you have to be able to read and write because I want to send out orders to my nobleman to tell you what to do. And I'm not going to trust that whoever carries the message will read the message correctly. I want you to be able to read it. Well, Alexander the Great had a similar problem in that none of his armies could communicate. So he invented... There is classical Greek language. He invented a very simplified Greek language that we call Koine Greek. And that became, because if it was kind of like um, you go anywhere in the world today, if, if you want to do commerce, you're probably going to have to speak English. Because we were the world power after World War II. You know, if you fly an airplane Anywhere in the world, the, the, the tower and the pilot communicate in English. I don't care if you're in China, Russia. English is the accepted language of aviation. It's also the accepted language of business because we were the superpower when all of this world commerce got started and we set that, tent, that trend. Well, when Alexander Great conquered the known world, if you wanted to do business, you knew Koine Greek. Well... When Paul was growing up, or when Paul was living, um, Jews knew Hebrew. They might know Latin, because you had, Rome was the, the big power, but the language of commerce was Koine Greek. That's why our New Testament is written in Koine Greek, and it's a very simplified Greek. Well, I said all that to say this, the word apostolos, where we get our, our English word apostle, the Sanhedrin used that term. The Sanhedrin was the chief political um, superpower of the Jewish world. When the Sanhedrin made a, a decision on Jewish worship practices or took a stand on anything that affected the Jewish people, they would take that decision, write it down, and they would give it to an, apostol or, or an apostolos, an apostle. And they would send that apostle out to convey that message to all the Jews everywhere. This is the voice of the Sanhedrin. In fact, that, that was um, when Paul went out to, you know, um, well, he was going to Damascus to enslave, arrest, kill, who knows what he would have done to the Christians. He was going as an apostle of the Sanhedrin. He had his marching orders. Well, when you go out as an apostle of the Sanhedrin, you go out with the authority of the Sanhedrin. You go out with all the power of the Sanhedrin because you represent them. I've used the example before when my kids were little. Uh, Tiffany always loved it. Ryan just, he would not come home until you forced him to come home. I don't care if he was, unless he was sick or hungry, he wasn't humming home. He was going to stay at the playground and play. And we would send Tiffany down to the playground and say, you go down and tell Ryan it's time to come home. And be sure you tell him that dad or mom, whoever sent the message, said it's time, not you. Because if you go down there and you say, Ryan, come home, he's going to say, well, you know, I don't have to listen to you. You're my little sister. You go down there and say, dad said come home. Then you're, it's your voice, but you're speaking for dad. That's got a lot more authority. 
Paul does this, he, he pulled that word out, this word apostolos, and uses it here. And it, it shows us that, that when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, he has that understanding. Jesus has sent me out with a specific message. And I come under his power, I come under his authority, and I represent him. And when, it's, when I speak, he speaks, which is a whole lot different than listening to any man. Let's face it, you can, you know, not to get into politics, but you can take your favorite politician in all the world. You can take your favorite editorial writer in all the world, your favorite wise man. This person speaks from Mount Olympus, in your opinion. They're still going to be wrong on occasion. And they're probably going to say things on occasion that sort of tick you off, or you're going to read it and think, wow, they ate a lot. You know, I had too many uh, pepperonis on their pizza last night to come up with this kind of an idea. That may be true of people, but it's not true of God. And when, when, when Paul, especially when he was anointed to write scripture, there was an, th that anointing allowed him to write it inerrantly. There, there are no, God didn't make mistakes when he wrote the word to us. It's, it's sound, it's true, and because of that, we can rely on it. But we can only rely on it because Paul was an apostle. Not just an apostle, but he was an apostle of Jesus, and it was by God's will. It gives us a more solid foundation, at least in my mind. And I just, when I read that today, it was like, wow, that just hit me so hard. I wanted to go back and, and touch on that. But then just real quick overview for this whole book of Ephesians, and we're going to see this introduced in, in verse 2. The key thought is the gathering together. Uh, um, um, a unification of, of man in God or in Christ Jesus. In fact, we're going to see that Paul is going to use a, 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 um, a term we're going to look at tonight saying that we are the body of Christ. Well, just take man in his natural state. We are fallen from, from the fall of, well, when, when Satan fell, it affected, the pollution went all the way to God's throne, you know, because God then created earth, he created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, gave them dominion. And when they fell, that loss of dominion, well, it wasn't a loss of dominion, but it was a loss of relationship with, with God. When Adam and Eve no longer had that relationship, it broke that relationship. And when that broke, it also broke our social union. Um, you see that in, in before the fall, man had dominion over the beasts. Today, there's strife between man and beasts. Um, I look every once in a while, you see these videos pop up on Facebook every once in a while where this, you know, somebody's training a, a grizzly bear or a, a lion and they're in this with this, this animal and they're, um, um, you know, there's nothing between the two of them. And they'll go up and grab them and hug them and wrestle with them. And, and I'm thinking, I, 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 I'm not ever doing that. I don't care if I raise that. Now, maybe if that lion is a cub, I'll go wrestle with it and I'll play with it. But when it's a full-grown male lion, 
and it's got all of its claws and all of its teeth, it can kill me just playing with me, not even mean to hurt me. In fact, there are a lot of those people that have ended up getting hurt or getting killed because the animal didn't mean to kill them. They were just playing around. They played too rough. That's because of the fall. That, that relationship between man and beast has been, has been broken. You see it between man and man. You know, you look at all the strife that there is in the world. And with us being coming up, you know, just a week and a half from, from Election Day, there's a lot of strife out there. There are people that are fighting mad. There are the, 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 the pro-Trump people are mad at the pro-Hillary people. The pro-Hillary people are mad at the pro-Trump people. And about half the people are mad at both of them. And there are a lot of people, they're just mad at everybody. I mean, it's just brought out, you know, the, this election has brought out feelings more than any election I remember in my lifetime. I mean, it's there were maybe maybe um, Nixon McGovern a little bit, but not. I don't think it was, and maybe I just wasn't paying attention. But it didn't seem to be as vicious as it is today. Well, that root of that is because we man, especially unredeemed man is not at peace with God. And if you're not at peace with God, you have a hard time being at peace with anybody if they disagree with you. And, and, it's, 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 and I believe it's one of the signs of the end. For one thing, uh, um, in the Gospels it said, you know, in the last days it will be as in the days of Noah. Well, one of the hallmarks of the days of Noah was violence was everywhere. And if you look at our world now, you know, you go back and look at the 20th century, you look at all the, the, the ancient history, mankind and violence have always been wed. <laughs> I mean, the Romans would cut your head off, you know, if they were being nice to you. If they weren't, they'd put you on a cross. But there's a lot of violence in our world, always has been, always will be because of the fall. This unification is broken. You see fighting between classes. You see it nation to nation, ideology to ideology, Gentile to Jew. Um, the world at large is in conflict because our nature is at conflict. It's the old saying, and, and it is a, it's trite, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, that is true. I mean, I've said it before. You can give me a fully loaded gun. Now, I wouldn't even think about taking one on an airplane because just an accident can crash you. But you give me a full, fully loaded gun, put me on an airplane heading across the ocean, you don't have any risk that I'm going to hijack the plane because I don't have hijack in my heart. When I walk in a bank, I don't think, you know, there's a lot of money in that safe. If I could get away with it, I'd rob this place and I'd have some, I'd have some cash. It'd relieve a lot of financial pressure. I don't think about robbing a bank because that's not my nature to rob banks. It, it's, it's, it's the nature of man. But what Paul's revealing here in Ephesians is that when we get saved, that God comes in and he unifies us. It's, it's what he says there in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a war going on. Um, all of the conflict that we see in the world is basically a reflection of the cosmic fight that's going on between Satan and God. And that happened prior, that started prior to the fall of man. 
but it's still going on. It'll go on until Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says that, you know, at, at the end, God's going to cast the devil into the lake of fire. And until that happens and all of his minions and all of his followers go in there with him, there's going to be conflict in the world. There's going to be conflict in the universe. It exists because of, first of all, the fall of Satan, but then even more so, the fall of man. This whole book, particularly the first three chapters, deal with, with a, a kind of a, a new conception. In fact, there were a lot of people, if you've known anything about Gnosticism, that was one of the doctrines that um, the early church had to fight against. And basically the, the, um, the doctrine of Gnosticism said that anything spiritual was pure, anything physical was... was um, was unpure and you couldn't have you can't take that impurity sin and infect the spiritual realm and you can't infect the physical realm with God's purity that's one of the reasons the Gnostics and it's one of the reasons they fought this so much was um, they would not accept that Jesus was both man and God because God would not take a physical body because that would bring him lower than God he could not he would have to cease to be God to be in a physical body. Well, that's not true. We know that's not true from scriptures, but that's what Paul's dealing with here is this concept that God has united us. All of the divisions that the world says we have, they don't exist. It's one of the things I love about coming to church. When you come to church, you can, you can have people lined up in a row. You can have somebody with a college degree um, sitting next to somebody who, you know, never finished high school, sitting next to somebody who runs a company and is a multimillionaire, sitting next to somebody who works, you know, has their name on their, their shirt and works for minimum wage, and they all stand there and lift their hands and worship the same God, and they fellowship together. And it doesn't matter where their station in life is. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. If you're united with Christ, you're united and you are one with him. Therefore, everybody that you come in contact that are Christians, you're united with them. In fact, if you've ever met, I, I've always loved this, especially if I'm traveling. Occasionally, you'll get into an airport and you just got a long layover and you're sitting there and you're bored. You've read all you can read. You, you know, you're just, you, you're just zoned out and you'll strike up a conversation with somebody total stranger and you just know in the course of the conversation you start thinking I really feel comfortable with this person and then come to find out when you have a little deeper conversation you find out they're a Christian and you realize this is why I feel comfortable with you we are both one in Christ and there is a there is just a knowing when you talk to people whether you know them personally or not you can you can figure out real quick if someone is a Christian or a non-Christian there's just a, a a fellowship there that doesn't exist if you're not in the body of Christ we're going to see this in the first three chapters it's introduced here in verse two but it's it's really brought to uh, just hit over and over and over again in these first three chapters. But then in the, in the last three chapters, Paul starts talking about our role as the body of Christ, which is one of his, it's one of Paul's phrases, and it's one of the great phrases of the New Testament, uh, about 
how we're to take that unity that God did and bring it into the earth. That's the whole purpose of this book is to, to show us who we are in Christ, what Jesus has done for us, but then say, now, because of that, this is what I want, this is what you need to do. Well, um, first thing we need to look when we see this, and, and, and we'll see it in these words, is number one thing, um, if you read through verse one, um, well, it's not in there. Yeah, it is. In verse 2, excuse me. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First point that he makes there at the end of the verse is Christ is God the Father's instrument of reconciliation. God the Father sent the Son into the earth to reconcile man to himself. But the other point is equally as equally important for our our. From our standpoint, we are part of the body of Christ. We dealt with this a few weeks ago. I, I can't remember if it was a Sunday morning or, or here on Wednesday night. But um, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are not our own. We are bought and paid for. Now we're sons, which gives us privileges, but as sons, we also have responsibilities. We need to represent dad well. Well, because we are, are, are bought with that price, we are the body of Christ, and we become Christ's instrument of reconciliation. God sent him to reconcile the world. He ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm going to gather you all up together, and you're going to be my instruments now to reconcile the world to me. Because he's not on the earth. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a mouth. He has no um, um, instruments on this planet to further his kingdom except for us. We are that. That's why he describes us. That's why I, I noted a few weeks ago, there is a difference between the church and the body of Christ. My mom and dad are part of the church. But now that they're deceased, now that they've gone on to heaven, they're no longer part of the body of Christ. Now, the great thing is, is when Jesus comes back, in a few weeks, months, few years, won't be long. I don't believe it will be. Um, he's going to unify and reunite the body of Christ into the church. The church will come with him and we as the body of Christ will meet them in the air. And together we will spend the rest of eternity as his church and in, in, with him in, in, in physical bodies. But let's go back to the first part of... of, of um, Verse two, this whole thing is represented by these two words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, I, I'm going to add a third word here because let me just read these to him. You can note them if you want to go back and look at them. Um, Paul has a lot, all of his letters, he has these greetings. It's kind of like a formal salutation. Um, in fact, before I even get into this, this other word, which basically is mercy, um, I've had people, you know, I, I, when you preach prosperity, and I do, 
I think God wants to prosper you. Now, that can mean a lot of things. Um, I think it entails money, but it's not just about money. You can prosper and not be um, um, wealthy, rich. Um, it's hard to prosper and not be rich in the sense, my, my definition of riches, riches is I have enough money to meet all of my needs and enough money left over to sow into every work that God tells me to work, to sow into. That's my definition of being rich. Um, some people's definition of being rich, you're not rich until you've got, you know, an eight-car garage and you need to add on to it because you've got more toys than you've got garage space for. I don't know that that's, that's true. But one of the verses that I have used as a proof verse to, to say that God wants me to prosper is 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And I have read commentary after commentary and had pastor and teacher after teacher tell me over the years, that's just a salutation. It's not a doctrinal stance. And I've always had the same response. I will agree with you that that's just a, 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 an empty greeting. If you will agree with me that if Jesus physically walked in this room and walked up and greeted me, if I greet Jim, shake his hand, say, how you doing? Let's be honest. Half the time we do it, we're not really asking, how are you doing? It's just something we say. It's a greeting. But if you think you can meet Jesus face to face and he's going to shake your hand and say, how are you tonight? And he doesn't mean it. You don't know the nature of Jesus. He doesn't waste words when he says, <coughs> and these are his words. This is inspired from the Apostle John. He says, I pray. I that means I'm petitioning God. And since God inspired me to write this, God inspired me to petition him that you would prosper in all things and be in health. Now he has a condition just as your soul prospers. So when I, and I, I say that to say this, this is a greeting. It's a formal way to write this letter, but it's also it's doctrinally sound. This is something that that counts just as much as the heart of this letter. And Paul said, verse two, grace to you and peace from God, our father. He means I'm God wants to give you his grace and he wants to give you his peace. Now, four other places. First Timothy one, two, he he uses some phraseology very similar to this. But there he says grace, mercy and peace. And second Timothy one, two, same thing. Grace, mercy and peace. Titus 1.4, um, all of these are Paul. He's, again, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even um, John writes in 2 John verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. They, in Ephesians here, he just pairs up grace and mercy or grace and peace but mercy is implied in all of this. And basically how I see this, and I'm, I'm going to get in a little more detail about what God's grace is and what his peace is. But how I see this happening sequentially, God's mercy is what started this whole thing. 
Paul says other places in the New Testament that we were, we were saved from before the foundation of the world. Before, the, before God ever made the first Adam, made empty space, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all got in agreement. We're going to create this universe. We're going to plant man on this planet. He's going to fall, and we're going to go plant ourselves in there, become a man, and we're going to die, pay for his sins to redeem him out of that. That's mercy. <laughs> I mean, it's just... It, it, Mercy is looking and saying, I'm willing to sacrifice for this person. If you've been a parent, you know mercy. Because, you know, as much as I loved my kids, there were times where I was sorely tempted to just grab them by the throat and squeeze till the tops of their head popped like a big old pimple. I know that's a beautiful picture to... But, I mean, there are times when you, you love them, but you just want to grab a big club and just beat them. Well, mercy says, no, I'm not. We're, we'll deal with it. We'll figure it out. We'll make it a learning situation. <laughs> you know, that's mercy. But God didn't just leave us with mercy. His mercy motivates all this, but he also gave us his grace. Now, the grace, it, it's, it's the heart of all of, of what God did in the person of Christ. Um, and Greek literature, which is Paul was very learned in, in the Greek language and very learned in, in Greek culture. He was uh, bought his way into a Roman citizen. I, I'm sure no one ever measured Paul's IQ because... They didn't measure those things. But I have no doubt Paul was a, um, a Pharisee. Pharisees by nature had memorized, you know, like 600 rules of the law. They, they, he had a mind. I don't know what his IQ is, was, but it, it was, he would have been considered a, a, a genius level person. He knew Greek literature. He knew what these words meant. And he picked this word, uh, charis, which we would describe, probably the closest word is um, charisma, which you've, if you've met somebody that's very charismatic, they just, they can charm the pants off of you. You have to be careful with charismatic people because they, if, they, if they're not tuned right, they can use that charisma to manipulate you. The great thing is God's grace is not trying to manipulate you. It's just trying to get you into a position where you can get blessed. But in Greek literature, charis always describes a free gift. We've described it as, as unmerited favor, which not a bad definition, but man, it it's, limits it so much. One that I've heard is the acronym for grace. It's God riches at Christ's expense, which I like that. It's everything that God was, grace gives you because Jesus paid for it. That's great. Um, sometimes it can mean loveliness. We talk about someone being graceful. If you watched, um, you know, when the Rio Olympics was on, if you watch the gymnastics, um, gymnasts are, are graceful. I mean, there's just a fluidity of their movement. You know, I, I love to watch the, the female gymnasts because they use more grace than they use power. But I also love to watch the men 
gymnasts because they combine just raw power. I mean, when you can do, I forgot that move where they do the T on the, the Iron Cross. I mean, they just hold those two rings out side by side and sit there motionless. And I'm thinking the strength that that takes is just, I can't imagine being that strong. And yet they are also extremely graceful. That is part of the quality of this. Barclay made a comment about this concept of loveliness. He said, a Christianity which is unattractive can't be real Christianity. And it's one of the problems that I have with, with especially the American church sometimes. There are a lot of Christians that are just not very lovely. They're hateful. They're mean. Some of the worst fights I've ever seen have been in church board meetings. I mean, I've seen some church, well, I've never been in one, but I've seen, I've heard of a few pastors that have told me stories. They've had church board meetings descend into fisticuffs. I mean, people physically go after one another. I have had people so mad at me over a doctrinal difference that they're, they're, they're cherry red and they're spitting. And I mean, it's everything in them. They want to just reach out and, and hit me. They, there's a hatred there. And I'm thinking, dear God, it's maybe I am wrong. But if I am, pray for me. <laughs> because there's an equal chance that you're wrong. But if it's not a heaven or hell issue, I don't really care. And most of the time when I've seen people get that mad, it really hasn't been a heaven or hell issue. But even if it's a heaven or hell issue, we can be lovely and still disagree. I love Brother Hagin had the saying, we need, to be, we need to learn to disagree without being disagreeable. Well, true Christianity can do that. Sometimes people can, and don't get me wrong, people can be true Christians, get so far over in the flesh that their flesh is acting out more than their renewed nature. But grace gives us this. But the, the, the amazing thing is, in normal Greek literature, grace was always something that you expressed to a friend. Never, never did you express grace to an enemy. That was just unheard of in the Greek society. And yet you look at, at Paul's description. This is in Romans 5, uh, verse 6 through 8. He says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, God stepped into the earth and paid the price for our sin. And you see this with Paul all the time. He takes a Greek word that, that is used widely in, the, in Greek literature and he imports it into the scriptures and totally changes the meaning. Just stands it on its head. This is one. God's grace, it, it's not just forgiveness. It's not just loveliness. It's the ability that God exercised in Christ to overcome sin, to pay the price for sin. But it also, for us, it's the power of God in manifestation. When, when you have 
When you have temptation come and try to pull you back. Remember, your flesh is, and Paul describes this in Romans, when we were, were, were unbelieving, when we were, before we were born again, we were married to our flesh. We were married to Satan. We were his slave. And he's a horrible taskmaster. And then we met Jesus. And it's like being married to this old fat guy, because we're the bride of Christ. You're married to this old fat guy who never shaves, never brushes his teeth, always smells bad, has ill manners, cusses, just he's just a louse. Nobody wants to be around him. And you meet Jesus and he walks in and he's thin and he's trim and he's tanned and he's handsome and he's well-mannered. And man, you look at him and you think, I got this stupid thing for a husband. This is what I want. And you get to know him and so you approach him and say, Look, um, I really would like to be married to you. Can we kill this old guy? <laughs> Let's get rid of him. Because I don't want to be married to him anymore. I want to be married to you. And his response is, no. But I can do this. I can kill you. And in your death, that marriage bond is broken. And that old man will have no legal hold on you. But I'm not going to leave you dead. I'm going to bring you back to life as a brand new person. Then you're free from that old marriage and you are now free to marry me. But that old guy is still there. What's he do? And if you ever know anybody that's been divorced, it, it's, it, it almost happens. It's a 90% chance it's going to happen. You go through a divorce, what's the first thing you do after the divorce is final? You go on a diet, you go to the gym, you lose weight, <laughs> you start looking better. Why? Because you want to be in a relationship with somebody and you're going to make yourself look better. That's exactly what your old nature does. They go on a diet, they get cleaned up, they shave, they brush their teeth, they're looking good, they grab a box of candy and they come... Hello, we used to be married. We could still fool around. It'd be okay. Your new husband won't matter. Well, grace not only killed us out of that old relationship and brought us back to life and brought us into a new relationship, but when that old nature comes knocking and suddenly you open the door and you realize this is why I fell in love with this fool. He looked pretty good and he sounded pretty good when we first got married. You're tempted. There's a temptation. Maybe I ought to go back and play with the flesh. You know, I really actually have good reason to be offended at that person. That person said something that wasn't very nice about me. They expressed some anger towards me. Make it even worse. They expressed anger towards my, my and, and disrespected my spouse. Now, you want to see me get over in the flesh? Come after my wife. I'll get in the flesh in a heartbeat. I may, I may fight it, but man, it'll be a battle. And half the time it's like, no, I'll repent later. I'll sin now. I'll get, I'll get, get this, make this right later. And you're not going to do that. Not with now. You attack me directly. Normally, I'll, I, I'll just suck it up and swallow it. Now I may have to, you know, I may re-argue that thing a couple of hours after we leave. But I'll eventually get it down and I'll walk away from it. Hard to do with your spouse and with your kids. But it's still a temptation. Grace not only gave us the power to get out of that, but it gives us the power to resist going back into that relationship with your flesh. Because your flesh will always be there tempting you and it will rationalize. 
especially when your emotions are high. Which is, to be honest with you, that's why I think we're seeing all of this emotion involved with, with the election coming up. It's because people are in the flesh over this. They're, they're not, um, there's a visceral reaction from both sides towards this, um, towards this, this, this election and these candidates. And it's because their emotions are involved. And if your emotions stay involved and rule you, I guarantee you, your emotions are more tied to your flesh than they are to your spirit most of the time. And you'll end up getting controlled by them. But God's grace will, will give us the ability to walk away from that. Now, the other great thing, we were there in Romans 5. If you drop down to the, to the um, last part of verse 20 in Romans 5, it, Paul makes a statement there. He says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Because that's where he, he goes in and because he's been accused of saying, well, you know, you believe in that once saved, always saved. And, you know, if, um, if, if, if I give glory to God by overcoming sin, well, then I ought to sin more because God's grace will be displayed more. And Paul says, well, that's idiotic. That's stupid. He, and and, and I, he did, you know, if my grandkids were here, they'd probably tell me, oh, you can't use that word stupid. No, this is stupid. This is one of the exceptions for my grandkids that you can use the word stupid. Um, what he's saying here, and this word abounded, and, uh, Wiest in his word studies uses in his translation, he uses the term superabound or, or, or um, superabundance. But where it, there at the end where it says grace abounded much more, this is how Wiest translates that. He said that last phrase can be translated Grace existed in superabundance and then more grace added to this superabundance. It's like I'm, I'm heaping, you know, it's like you needed some money and I gave you, you know, you needed 50 bucks. I gave you $100 million. And then I walked away, but before I got out of the bank, I thought, Nah, that ain't enough. And I went back and gave you another billion. That's what grace is. It, it so overwhelms the strength of the enemy that Paul really is having a hard time getting terms that describe how great and how, how powerful God's grace is. One of the ways that, that I've looked at it if you know anything about lifting weights, the, the, the people who lift the most weights do um, deadlifts. They just put a, a, a bar on their shoulders. They'll pull it off, do a squat, come right back up. That's the super, I mean, that's where you're going to get the most gross weight because you're using your, your leg muscles, which are the largest, strongest muscles in your body. You might lift a lot with your arms, but you can't lift near with your arms what you can with your legs. Well, in Psalms 8.3, it's a familiar psalm. Um, the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. When God created the universe, the power that he needed to create the universe, he was described the strength that he had in his fingers. Well, we always used to, you know, um, 
say, well, are you going to do your exercises? Yeah, I'm doing my calisthenics. And you do your finger calisthenics like you're really accomplishing something. You know, if you're exercising to lose weight, you're going to have to do finger calisthenics for about 40 hours a day to burn up a calorie. Um, but in Isaiah 59, verse 16, this is what God said. He said, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. When he describes bringing Jesus out of death, he, Jesus became sin for us. He took the sins of the world for us. And Satan had him in his, in his, in his grasp. Satan knew, this is it, man. I don't know what he did wrong, but he could not have died had he not done something wrong. Never realizing that he died on purpose. He didn't really didn't. The Romans didn't kill him. The Jews didn't kill him. Jesus gave up his life. Did it willingly. But when it came time to bring him out of that, shed the sin, let his righteousness that was his nature shine forth again, God describes it that it took the strength of his arm. Now, I can apply a lot more strength with my arm than I can with my finger. But I can't apply even a fraction of the strength of my arm that I can with my legs. Which tells me that even though God's grace is super abundant, he's still got more power available. So and, and, and the reason that's important is he says in verse 2, grace to you. God is saying, this is what I'm making available to you. All the power that, that I use to bring Jesus out of the grave, to, to bring him out of this connection with sin, however that worked, that power is available to you. And if you need more than that, which I can't imagine that we would, but if you need more than that, I got more available. I've just given you $100 million, and then I thought, no, I'll give you another billion just to make sure your bank account doesn't run low. Well, that's all right. I've got my bank account's got, you know, a trillion, trillion in it. So this really isn't going to tax me. And if you need more, which, you know, I, I don't, I, I did a thing one time and figured out, I looked at the national debt and figured out how much money I would have to spend. I, I, I couldn't. One person could not spend that amount of money. And it's just not impossible, not in one lifetime. It takes a whole collection of people to run up a debt like that, plus, you know, some mindlessness there. But then not only does that grace available to you, but the other great thing is God's mercy motivated it. His grace brought it to us, but it also brings his peace. And this piece, um, I guess probably the best thing I saw was from William Barclay. It's never just a negative word. It doesn't just mean that there's the absence of trouble. Billy Graham famously said one time, when two nations declare peace, basically that's a reload period. It's not going to last. I mean, you look at the history, and it's ancient history, but it is a history uh, one of the, the, the motivating factors of forming the NATO allowance, for hundreds of years, France and, and England had, it wasn't a matter of when they were going to go to war. It was a matter of 
or not a matter of if they would go to war. It was a matter of when. They just fought war after war after war. They were mortal enemies. And they would make peace, and it would last maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe even 100 years, but eventually they're going to come back and do it again. That's what the world's definition of peace is. It means we're not in conflict. That's not God's definition. The Hebrew word here that, that we get our word for peace is, is shalom. The best meaning of shalom is at its root means nothing missing, nothing broken. And, and every time that peace is used in the New Testament, the key thought of it is a unity. It's like, and, and I, if I can describe this, and this means more to me than it would to you, but if you've ever been in a situation similar to this, you'll understand it. When, when Gina had her heart attack in December, I mean, the first time I saw her, and this is not a pleasant thing to even remember, let alone to go through the first time. First time I saw her, she was laying out on the, the floor of a, of a rest, public restroom, totally naked, with two EM, EMTs bending over her with wires running all over her, them squashing her chest, still doing CPR. And the one guy that came and talked to me said, we don't know if we're you know we're about to the point where we're going to just have to quit it's not working well we went from that to three months later we went to the doctors they did the 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 echocardiogram and we met with the doctor and he says i don't understand this you have no heart damage this cannot happen it never happens. Only 5% of the people who have their heart have a heart attack as big as she do that, that you know, they've given her all the medication they could give her. They've done all the shocks they could give her. They're ready to give up. And finally, her heart starts beating enough they can get her in the ambulance and get her to the hospital. Only 5% of the people ever make it to an ER alive. And of that 5%, almost none of them make it out without massive heart damage or brain damage or both. And she's got no brain damage, no heart damage. Well, when she first woke up, it was all I could do to not squeeze her in half. I mean, you know, my, we're, we're a normal couple. We have our great moments and we have our moments when, you know, divorce is not an option, but murder just might be, you know. Um, but I'm telling you, when, when she was laying there helpless, there wasn't no, there, there was just... All I wanted to do was just hold her. Now, I couldn't because she wired up to everything. But that's the piece. The best picture of this is from Luke 15, 20, the prodigal son. The son's been out. He's spent his entire inheritance. He's dissed his dad. He's disrespected his whole family. And he comes back and he just wants to be a servant in his house. And what does the father do? He says when the boy was still a ways off, the father broke, he had compassion on him. There's our mercy. But then it says he ran and embraced him and fell on his neck. In my mind, this dad just swallows him up in a hug and is crying and kissing him. My God, my son is home. My son was dead. Now he's alive. That's the peace that God brings us. 
His mercy put it in operation. His grace is the power that gives us everything we have. But his peace wraps us up. It's one of the reasons that I never understand how people can believe. Well, if I, you know, if I haven't confessed all my sins and I'm not confessed up and I die, I might not make it to heaven. Are you kidding? When you were hit, the, God's worst enemy, he died for you. Now he's running. He's embraced you. He's loved you. He's holding on to you. In fact, he says, in, in, I think it's in Revelation, that no man can snatch you from my hand. Well, that's just God's peace. It's not just that God's not mad at me. It's that God ran towards me and embraced me. And he's brought this unity between me and him. Which also makes it crazy when you see Christians fussing with other Christians to the point where, well, I'm not fellowshipping with them. Their doctrine's just not right. Well, whoopee-doo, who made you the doctor of doctrine? You know, now usually I just keep my mouth shut and go home and try to pray for them because, you know, um, what was it? The, the world's greatest philosopher said, stupid is and stupid does. Um, sometimes you, you know, there's just not a lot you could do if people choose to be that way. And usually that's just because people are in the flesh or they're, they're not very secure and so they lash out. But our problem is not with God. He's brought a unity to us and we're going to see it. I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe it comes across, but I am so pumped about looking at this because there is so much in here. God wants us to walk in so much of his riches and so much of his power and so much. He wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. And he's made it all available. And it's just a matter of us saying, yes, Lord. And then learning to stay out of our flesh and walk it out. Because there are some requirements. There's not a requirement to have the relationship with him other than accepting Jesus. But there, is a re there, is, there are some requirements to walk out in those blessings. You know, the, the, the concept and the spiritual law of sowing and reaping still applies. You sow bad seed, sometimes you will reap a crop, whether you've repented or not. If your girlfriend's pregnant, God's not going to dissolve the baby. Well, sometimes we got girlfriends that are pregnant, metaphorically. We've sowed some seeds to our flesh and, you know, we're praying for crop failure, but sometimes we don't get crop failure. But God's, Jesus, Paul's going to show us even with that, how do you avoid that and how do you deal with it once you've got it? God can, you know, despite our flaws and our faults, God can still bless us. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.